three dots were together. And we're going to be looking at Acts 4, uh, 1 to 31, which is on page 1095 in the Red Bibles and also on the screen. So Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Cyprus, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter said, uh, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release... Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they had heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, and the people of the Israel in this city conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
They did what your power and what and sorry, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening, everybody. Well, this is the good news story that you are hoping for. Uh, God's word is always good news. Uh, and we have a fantastic passage before us from Acts 4. But before we get to that, uh, I have a, one of my favourite comedians is a comedian called David Mitchell, uh, who kind of his angry logic is his kind of vibe. And there's a, a kind of a slide from one of his skit shows, which he does on the, on the slide, which will be the next picture there. Uh, he does a, a comedy series with a guy uh, called David Webb, actually. Uh, and this is one of my favourite skits where they both play uh, German officers on the Eastern Front in World War II, and they're discussing their uniform, and they discover that their uniform is decorated with skulls. Uh, and then Webb asks at one point, hang on a second, are we the bags? As they realise that perhaps they're not quite the goodies, they thought after all that perhaps the Nazis are in fact the baddies, and they have this existential crisis, as they realise they are actually the baddies now, not the goodies. Now the same question I think is being asked of Christians, of Christianity, particularly in the Western world. Increasingly, people, when they look at Christians, no matter how nice Christians are, they are more and more being seen as the baddies. Now, I think historically, uh, Christians were not always seen as the best people in the world. It was seen a bit weird. Nice but weird was probably my experience in the workplace. But I think that's gone to uh, a slightly different take, where people now see Christianity as, in the, in the language of our day, problematic. <coughs> problematic. And so the question is, how do you then proclaim the gospel where the message itself and Christians are problematic? And this is why tonight's passage is so relevant. Uh, it is as problematic then as it was, as it is now. There's actually... Uh, the same dynamic at play. There are different cultural reasons why it's the case, but there's the same dynamic at play. So we have uh, Peter and John are preaching the gospel, uh, and they get the ultimate version of being cancelled. Uh, they get put in jail, which is about as cancelled as you can get. Now, why why are they put in jail? It seems like a rather extreme measure to go through. Just look at go to the next slide, thanks, thanks, Elspeth. Uh, chapter 4, remember, is continuing a story that started earlier, uh, particularly in chapter 3, where Peter and John form a miracle. Remember, there's, a, there's a, 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 a lame beggar, and he gets healed, and he goes leaping and, and jumping and praising God, and he went to Sunday school, you'll know there's an exciting song, which each time I preach that passage, I get very tempted to jump into song, but I won't. Uh, so there's a miracle, and there's a message. Peter preaches the gospel. And it's because of the miracle and the message that there is quite a stir. And, and the leaders and authorities are particularly upset about what's going on. We see that in verse 2. Have a look at verse 2. They, that is the leaders, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
Now, there are a number of reasons why these leaders are disturbed when they find uh, Peter and John problematic. Uh, there's a, I've mentioned four up here. Resurrection. Uh, the reason for resurrection being such a controversial topic is the fact that many of the high priestly family who make up these leaders belong to the, to, to the group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. Therefore, preaching about resurrection is going to be uh, a topic that undermines their own theological position. So they're not going to be big fans of Peter and John if Peter and John start talking about resurrection. Um, the second reason why there's a challenge here is because of the rapid growth of the early church. See, in the eyes of the leaders, this kind of uppity Jesus guy, they dealt with him, right? they killed him, and hopefully his followers would then disappear as many other leaders had come to say, I'm the Messiah, been killed off, problem solved. But yet now this Jesus cult in their eyes is growing at, like, it's, it's chaos, it's growing, it's fast, it's furious. 3,000 people on Pentecost joined the church. Uh, in 247 we read that new Christians are joining the church daily. And in verse 4 we read, but many who heard the message believed, so the number of men, just the number of men who believed, grew to about 5,000. So they're losing control. This Jesus cult is kind of growing and they've lost their power. But the message also challenges their view about who the Messiah or the Christ is. Now the Jewish expectation was that a Messiah would come, yes. And a Messiah would come, a promised king, a promised ruler, who would rescue the people from oppression. And who are the oppressors at this time? The Romans. What have the Romans ever done for us, right? That's, that's, that's their phrase. In other words, they expected a private Messiah for the Jewish people. That's their expectation. But in the previous chapter, as Peter preaches, Peter has reminded them that in fact Jesus is not a private Messiah. Jesus actually will be a universal Messiah. That is, for all peoples, regardless of whether they're Jewish or whether they're Gentile. It was God's great promise that through the Messiah, all peoples on earth will be blessed. But that comes into conflict with their view of the Messiah, so they find this disturbing. And fourthly, there's a broader challenge around the culture of the Roman Empire, particularly with its power and peace, which really are the same thing in Roman culture of this time. Uh, the way the Romans kept the peace, the Pax, was this, to say, look, we have conquered lots and lots of different people who hold all these kind of different religious beliefs. You can worship whomever you want, in any way you want, as long as you do one thing. And that one thing is that you worship Caesar first. Then we can have peace. And if you don't like it, well, we've got a sword as well. That's the Roman view of peace. In other words, there's no problem with Peter and John saying that there is salvation in Jesus. That's okay. The problem is you can't say that Jesus is the only Savior. He can be one among many. And so they find this preaching disturbing and they see in verse 3. 
they then John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail for the next day. He's putting the two hard basket with him. We'll work on what to do with these guys in the morning. So here is a culture that is pluralistic, that is multicultural, and not sure what to do with Christianity. Does that sound familiar? In other words, it's not we don't have got the same culture as the first century, but there are many elements where we see the same kind of dynamic working out. Because the gospel still is, in many people's eyes, problematic. So this is uh, the next slide. There's a modern version of the Roman peace, the Roman pact, so it goes a bit like this. Um, all religions have the truth, or at least some aspect of the truth. And we can have peace as long as we see all religions as helpful and valid, as long as no one claims exclusively that they have the only one, or that there's only one saying then we can all get along. And therefore to claim, as Peter does in 4 verse 12, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If that's your claim, that's arrogant. And that's exclusive. And therefore, that's wrong. That's problematic. You can't say that. Now, when they say it's arrogant and exclusive, I think generally people mean one of two things, or perhaps both of these things. Uh, firstly, to say that Jesus is the only way for salvation is to say, you're saying that this Jesus guy is superior to any other religious person. And our culture says, no, no, you can't say one person is more superior. That's, that's, that's an arrogant claim. That's, that's a claim to power because truth is about To make an absolute claim in a pluralistic society is a no-no. It's a bid for power. <coughs> now, the big problem, of course, with this is that Jesus himself makes this claim. So verse 12 is just a summary of what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now what this means, of course, is that Jesus can either therefore be inferior, inferior or superior to any other leader or authority. It just can't be one of me. Now let me explain what I mean. If Jesus is telling the truth about who he is, if he truly is God's divine son, then there is no other name by which we can be saved. If Jesus is telling a lie that he's not the divine son of God, then he's not just one of many, he's basically discrediting himself, and he's below everybody else. He's alive. In which case, salvation is not found in Jesus. The only thing Jesus can't be is one among many. Is either superior or inferior. I think another reason why people see Christianity as uh, arrogant or exclusive is that culturally we see spirituality, if you're from a Western world particularly mindset, uh, your spirituality is a private thing, right? Your faith, that's a private thing. And then we're going to keep it to yourself. It's not something that you want to force on other people, right? Because it's a private thing. It's not objectively true. It's a personal thing. 
And, and this is part of what our Western mindset sees as the facts versus values distinction. Where we distinguish between what is the case as facts and what we think things ought to be the case as values. Let me give you an example. If you were to stand on Sydney Road as a tram coming before you, uh, towards you at 60 kilometres an hour, whatever your, your, your beliefs are about you being able to stop that tram with your forehead, the fact of the matter is the tram will win. Right? That's a fact. The value is broccoli is a horrendous vegetable. Now, I think that's a fact, but other people will disagree. That's a value point. That's a personal case. In the morning congregation, the kids will all cheer, yes, John, you're right, broccoli. And all the parents are like, don't listen to John, he's eat your broccoli. In other words, we see, we're, as Westerners, as facts are universal and values are culturally and, and, and personally specific. I expect everybody values affect just you and perhaps your culture or your cultural group. In other words, what, what would this, this would mean is that Christianity may be subjectively helpful for you or for a cultural group. It helps you privately, that's great, but it's wrong to suggest that it's subjectively true. God and spirituality, they're far too big to be defined by propositions or statements of belief. It's the vibe, right? Therefore, all religions can be helpful, even if they're not true. That's the kind of cultural language. And there's a quote here from Jonathan Haidt, who is a fantastic author. He's a atheist who thinks religion's a good idea. <laughs> That's, uh, it's worth reading for that alone. He, he's got a fair, I don't know if he really says, of course, but it's a fascinating insight into religion from an atheist perspective. He said, for example, groups create supernatural beings not to explain the universe, but to order their society. In other words, there's just a goodness to them. So even if they're not true, which he doesn't believe they're true, they're still good. They help people do nice things when they're religious. But there's, a, there's actually a, an intrinsic problem with this. It only works, by the way, if you're like uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt, who believes there is no God, or you believe there is a God, but God doesn't actually care about what you do or think or say. An indifferent God. And it actually pushes that view of either no God or an indifferent God upon you to accept uh, the outcome. And so you end up making this absolute statement and say, you must believe my view of there being no God or an indifferent God to hold this view. And secondly, as I've hinted at, it's actually a very weird world view. So I've got a slide for our weird world view. To see religion as a private thing. Uh, this whole facts, values, distinction is part of our weird culture. If you come from a Western, individualistic culture, I'm sorry to break it to you, but you're weird. The rest of the world thinks you're weird. Thinks we're weird. Uh, what is weird? Well, the acronym's there. Western. Educated, industrialised, rich, and democratic. In other words, I'm not saying you personally might not be all those things, but you inhabit a culture which is all of those things. If that's your viewpoint, like me, we are very much in the minority of the world. And so absolute claims about Jesus are particularly offensive to those who have this primarily white, colonial, Western Enlightenment view of 
the way spirituality works, which separates facts from values. Uh, when I speak to people from non-Anglo backgrounds, they are more than happy to talk about religion and tell me that I'm completely wrong. And for me to say to them that I think they're completely wrong. And we have a fantastic conversation. Why? Because your faith isn't a personal thing, it's a universal So of course you talk about it. And we see this clash sometimes. There was a very interesting article uh, uh, I read this morning in you know, Apple News, where a, a town in America, I don't actually remember the name, uh, a very progressive town, and they were very excited because there was a Muslim majority elected to their local council. Now, what happened next was they were shocked that these Muslim people decided to import their values on the town and suggested all these things that the progressive people thought were wrong. And they felt betrayed. Why? Because they had a facts-value separation. Where the Muslim Americans didn't have such a separation. And so we had a clash of the weird worldview and the rest of the world. So that, that, that's the culture that we live in. Uh, and we're very thankful to have a bit of a mix here at St. Jude. Some of us are from weird cultures, some of us are from unweird, normal cultures. And it's okay if you're from a non-weird culture to say, man, you guys are weird. Because we know we're not being polite, right? <laughs> but many of us see this culture. How do we then respond? How do we then preach the gospel if we're part of a weird culture or working in a weird culture? Well, there's so much we can learn from the way Peter and John change. How to respond to share the gospel. That is the next slide, thanks. I think we need to be aware, firstly, that being nice won't necessarily make your life easier as a Christian. Now, don't hear me say stop being nice. Can I say please be nice? Keep being nice in your workplace and with your colleagues and with your family. Please keep being loving and gracious. But what I'm saying is, just because you're nice and a Christian won't make people think, oh, isn't that they may still think that there's something terribly wrong. Have a look what happens to Peter and John. They are arrested for taking part in the most terrible crime of healing a beggar. Right? That, that's pretty nice, right? Not only a beggar, a lay beggar gets healed and they're thrown in prison. That's pretty nice. And actually, Peter refers to this kind of, this kind of Bizarre point. In his defence, he says in verse 9, have a look. Uh, if we've been called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked, he was, uh, asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. It's an act of kindness. But yet you're accusing us. And so I think we need to be prepared and almost to kind of be ready, embrace the fact that in our post-Christian world, Western world particularly, being a Christian will automatically make you a bad guy in other people's eyes, even if you're really nice. Once again, don't be nice. Don't be nice. Please be nice. Be nice. But that won't stop you. In the eyes of the world, you're being a bad guy. And the only way our world will often see us not being a bad guy is to do what the world says you need to do in order to be a good guy. Conform with what we do, then we'll see you as a good guy. 
So stop being surprised that the world finds Christian weird or problematic. I think we need to kind of learn to be okay with that, which is hard, because that hasn't always been the case. Now, Steve McAlpine, who's written this fantastic book called Being the Bad Guys, he's written a whole lot of stuff on this, How to Live with Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. He actually came and spoke about walking congregation. It was fantastic. Now, he says this, it's about how to be the best bad guy you can be. It's about how being the best bad guy you can be. Um, can I encourage you? You can read that book. It's a fantastic. Uh, secondly, we need to follow the example of these apostles and be courageous. They spend the night in prison and the leaders release Peter and John because they want to ask him a question. And in fact, it's really the key question of this whole section. And the question there is in verse 7. It's where this kind of whole passage situates. It says, They had Peter and John brought to them and began to question them. And here's the question. By what power or what name did you do this? Now, as we've seen earlier, this idea of name is, is kind of really big in the book of Acts, particularly in opening chapters of Acts. And name can be the idea of a substitute for our personal presence or the idea of carrying the authority of or the commission of, we kind of say, I'll stop in the name of the law, that kind of thing. And so Peter answers the high priest's question, and he answers clearly, and technically he's meant to be defending himself, it's a bit like a court situation. But instead, notice he goes on the attack. He says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he says, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you here. He, he asks right here, he says, you have crucified, and then repeats it even more clearly in verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, he says, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That, that's a pretty bold thing to say when his life is technically on the line. He's in court, by the way. This is not just a, a discussion over the water cooler at work. Or over the Zoom meeting at work, I'm not sure how it works. <coughs> He's in the dock. And how do the leaders respond? Look at verse 13. When they saw the courage, the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These guys are just ordinary guys. And they're not kind of some super theologian who's been at a Ridley College for 20 years, a PhD, haven't got fancy arguments, they're not super intelligent. I'm sure they've hated public speaking. Does anyone here actually love public speaking? I don't mind it, but that's the you know, um, There was a stat that I read that 30% of people would rather die than speak publicly. You know, yeah, that's it. <laughs> but here they are publicly speaking with their life on the line and they boldly proclaim Jesus. So here's the question, right? They haven't got fancy arguments. They haven't, they haven't got a fancy theological education. There's unschooled everyday folks. Where did they get their courage from? Because it's very easy for me to say, just be courageous, right? Where do you find the source for that, for that courage? 
What do you locate? What do you grab hold of to have such courage? And the answer we have in front of us is in the end of verse 13. It's a lovely little hint there. Notice the leader say, it says there, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. In other words, the courage to tell people about Jesus comes from, guess what? Jesus himself. What is it about Jesus that led you to, to kind of become a Christian in, in the first place? To, to have that moment when grace just became so overwhelming and irresistible. What, what keeps you being a Christian? Why do you come out in the middle of a Sunday night to beautiful Parkville at night? Why do you do that? What, what is it about Jesus that just so warms your heart that you say, that is why I'm still a Christian? How has God's grace radically shaped you? Just finished doing Christianity Explored and had some fantastic questions from uh, the non-Christians who've come. One of, one of the non-Christians invited their other non-Christian friend halfway through. <laughs> You've got to come. This is weird stuff. And this young woman, very intelligent doctor, uh, said, what I don't get is that you Christians just give stuff away. Why, why would you do that? That seemed weird. Like, you could earn money, you could buy a house, but yet you choose to, she's only in a broader context, you're choosing to give up your Tuesday night to talk about Christianity. It's your thankful for it. Why do you do it? Why do you tithe? Like, why do you look after home life? She had no, why? Why do you follow Jesus, she said, which is basically her way of saying this. And I wonder what your answer would be. Because that's where we find our courage. Not in our own abilities, but in the grace and love and mercy and transformation that Christ gives us. Have a look at what Peter and John say when they're told, stop teaching about Jesus overtly, right? Stop doing it. Now, verse 19. Peter and John replied, this is such a great question, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you? Or to listen to him. You be the judges. See how we kind of turn the trial around at this point? Then he says this in verse 3. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen. We cannot help. It's like, it keeps leaking out of us. We've been here, so we're so transformed. We can't help but tell you. And so we need to discover what's that thing that, that makes us say, we cannot help. That's where our courage comes from. Reflecting on Christ. Look to Jesus. And when we do, we too say, we cannot help but speak. Thirdly, we need to remember and keep teaching that the gospel is about service and not power. And notice in the middle of Peter's speech, he quotes, it's actually from a psalm, Psalm 118, verse 22. And he says there, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone, or kind of, it's kind of like the keystone, it's the most important stone in a building. 
And there's a modern version of this I discovered on helicopters. Now, I've got up this, I had to work out this morning. I called the, I forgot what it was called, so I called it the Whirly Bit. The Brokester. Okay. They were not a engineer who was doing an exam that morning just going, 101. The rotor bit attached to the, what, the rest of the helicopter bit? I don't know, whatever that's called. The helicopter? They're joined by a bolt. Do you know what the bolt is called? It's called the Jesus bolt. I call it Jesus. If it fails, guess what? You're meeting Jesus. That's right. That's the whole thing. Like, the army people are reason to him, right? Otherwise, it's utterly crucial. It's the most important part. Without it, you don't get anywhere. Or you go on some very quickly, depending on where you are when you start. <laughs> and, but notice what Peter is saying here about Jesus. This is the most important thing, but it's a stone that was rejected. It was on the, we've got a pile of rejected stones outside that we prepared for you, so you can have a look outside. And all the rejected stones that are not going to make part of the new deal for the, the really dying pole. That is the picture of Jesus. It's a beautiful reminder that at the heart of the gospel is not a, not a claim for power, but a call for service. See, the claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is not a, an absolute truth claim that says, we have all the power. A claim for oppression, though. The truth is actually a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, Sorry, but to get the right way not, not to serve. No, you're right, not the right person. Uh, not to be served. When you overthink it, John, just come back to your text. <laughs> Came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for me. That's the gospel message. That's what we proclaim as Christians. That's the truth that we say. It's not a call for power. It's radically a truth that calls us. And so what's our call? Well, our call as followers of Jesus is to continue to proclaim this gospel. Of a God who loves this world so much that he sent his son to die for it. To do so with love and concern. To do so and be all that we should be as followers of Jesus. Even when the world sees us as the bad God. But we humbly and resolutely hold out to a different story, the gospel. And continue to proclaim that salvation is found in no one else than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray that we would be such people. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. And we thank you so much for the examples of John and Peter and the early apostles who so uh, bravely and courageously declared your gospel. Not because they were confident in themselves, but because they had seen Jesus and were so transformed by his love that they could not help but share the good news. Father, we pray that you too would make us courageous and bold to share your gospel. Because we want to love people the way that you love them. And may we graciously point to Jesus who came not in power but in service. And it's for your glory we pray.
Amen. Well, now it's our chance to respond by saying,